All right. Well, welcome to those who are listening via the podcast. And just a reminder that the handout for tonight is in the notes on uh, the podcast. So you can click on that link and download a PDF of the handout uh, for tonight. And so why don't I start us off with a word of prayer? Father God, thank you for tonight. And uh, just once again, for calling us together around your word and around, um, you know, seeking out your ways, God, seeking out, to, seeking to understand um, who you are, how you're working in this world. And Father, we just ask, you know, we want, as we work our way through these various topics in a systemized way, a, a systematic theology, again, help our theology uh, move towards doxology, that we would worship you, uh, that we would draw confidence, um, that we would draw encouragement and thanksgiving and comfort from this, uh, what I think is, there's parts of this doctrine that are so easy to understand, this doctrine of providence, and then there's things that are just, I've been reading and studying for years, and I, I still don't fully understand, and um, help us to be, to live in the tension of that. Thanks so much for those who are here tonight. Use this time uh, to sharpen us and to encourage one another. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so over the last two weeks, uh, we've been going over the doctrine of creation. Uh, we saw that the Bible teaches that God created the universe out of nothing by his word, that he is the author of all things, both visible and invisible, uh, both in the heavenly and earthly realms that he created all things good, and that he created all things for his glory and for our joy. Um, we now turn our attention from the doctrine of creation to the doctrine of providence, which we'll be in for the next couple of weeks. And here's the plan as, as we do that. Um, this week, what I wanna do is consider, uh, God willing, uh, what the doctrine of providence is, um, and, you know, there's, there's multiple definitions and, and aspects of this, so just giving you at least one, I, one take on that. And then several implications of the doctrine of providence for our lives. And then next week, uh, we're going to consider several common questions that arise from this doctrine. For example, how does God's sovereignty, how does God's providence relate to our choices? and human responsibility? Or how does God's sovereignty or providence intersect with sin and evil and suffering in the world? So those might be some big questions that either you have, you're somewhat familiar with, and you'd love to wrestle with again. Uh, we'll, we'll get after those uh, next week. Um, so we'll jump in tonight, uh, answering what is providence. Uh, by way of the Heidelberg Catechism. And this is uh, kind of a little bit of a smushing together of question number 27 in the Heidelberg Catechism and then the answer. God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures and so governs them that leaf and blade rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, 
health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things, come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Now, you already may have some questions as a result of that, or some bones that you might want to pick um, as a result of that definition, but let's get a little further way in, and then I'll stop and give a chance for questions. And it, it is, I remember when I first, I first came into contact um, with this doctrine, and this would have been when I was probably about 30 years old. We had Colton and Isabella at the time and started learning over the course of the next year about providence and sovereignty and under the ministry mainly of Pastor John Piper. And um, it's kind of funny because, you know, when you first, sometimes when you first start coming to things, especially in your youth, you can get really intense about them. I don't know if that, at least my personality can lend towards that. And I just remember always talking that, you know, because what does it say? Indeed, all things come not by chance. So one of the ways that that worked out, it's kind of a funny little story, is that anytime anyone would talk about, you know, like, good luck, or he would be like, good luck. I'm like, I don't believe in luck. <laughs> you know, I, they're just not looking for that at all, right? So just a little reminder that even as we study these things, there, we still want a gentleness for those who might not be where we're at and... Um, I don't believe in luck, as defined commonly, um, but I don't necessarily need to get someone's in face about using the term either. So, um, so we see here from the Heidelberg Catechism, providence is the belief that God, in his goodness and power, preserves, accompanies, upholds, directs, and governs all creatures, all actions, and all things. Again, this is, I'm positing this. This will be for us to talk about and you to decide if you agree. From the largest star in the galaxy to the smallest sparrow in a tree, God the creator and king governs all to the praise of the glory of his wisdom and power, justice and goodness and mercy. I believe that we see throughout the Bible the teaching that God is the one who gives life renews, sees, watches over, observes, saves, protects, preserves, leads, teaches, rules, works, upholds, and cares for all of his creation and especially for all of his people as the pinnacle of that creation. We hold a special place, I believe, in the heart of God. Turn in your Bibles with me, if you would, to Psalm 104. Psalm 104. We're going to read this together as an example of some of these things. And uh, I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Psalm 104, verse 1. And right off the bat, when you read verse 1, my soul, bless Yahweh, I, I... I'm so freshly encouraged every time I read the psalmist. Like so often, this is what they're doing, right? They're they're talking to, they're they're addressing themselves, they're confronting themselves, they're preaching to themselves, is the way Martin Lloyd Jones always used to talk about it. Um, that that we need to address our own souls. <laughs> Sometimes we gotta get up in our own grills, as it were. My soul, bless Yahweh. And then he turns 
to his God. Yahweh, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with majesty and splendor. And then he starts to reflect on this now, right? So see, I'm speaking to my soul. Okay, I want you to bless Yahweh. Yahweh, here's who you are. I'm just so grateful for who you are. And now, and then he turns to the congregation, as it were. He, being Yahweh, his God, wraps himself in light as if it were a robe, spreading out the sky like a canopy, laying the beams of his palace on the waters above, making the clouds his chariot. How slowly do you read your Bible? Probably not slowly enough. We, we need to take time, particularly in the Psalms. That, right, it's, most of it is poetry. They're songs, but it's poetry. And, and poets are particularly skilled at creating. Um, I remember it was said once of, of David McCullough that he paints with words. And, and the psalmist paint with words. So to, to slow yourself down, and instead of just letting them be words, how are they brushstrokes? What are the images that, are, that he's meaning to evoke in your mind? It, it, spreading out the sky. I mean, imagine God holding the gray clouds in the sky that I walked underneath this morning. And, and just like, like we would roll out, you know, a fret, my wife rolls up the towels when she... When she, she doesn't fold them, she rolls them up and sticks them under the sink in the bathroom. And like, then you just roll that out. That's what he's doing with the sky. He's rolling it out like a canopy, laying the beams of his palace. Have you seen beams laid in? An Amish barn raising, right? Like, what are the, like, you want to picture these things as you're going through the scriptures. He lays the beams of his palace on the waters above, making the clouds his chair, walking on the wings of the wind, making the winds his messengers, flames of fire, his servants. He established the earth on its foundations. It will never be shaken. Now, and then he turns, I love this, right? Like he's turning congregation and now back to addressing God. You covered it with the deep as if it were a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, the water fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. Mountains rose and valleys sank to the place that you established for them. You set a boundary that they cannot cross. They will never cover the earth again. He causes the springs to gush into the valleys. They flow between the mountains. He did the Arkansas River Valley. He set the place in the boundaries of the river that is in our home. These waters supply water for every wild beast. The, the wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky live beside the springs. And they make their voices heard among the foliage. He waters the mountains from his palace. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of your labor. He causes the grass to grow for the livestock and provides crops for man to cultivate, producing Food from the earth. So now are you hearing the catechism? Every blade of grass. When I 
when I walk on the Monarch Spur Trail and I see cows in that pasture and they're eating, he's the one who brought those blades of grass up for those particular cows. He produced food from the earth, wine that makes human hearts glad, making his face shine with oil and bread that sustains human hearts. The trees of Yahweh flourish, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. It's there that the bird make their nests. Storks make their homes in the pine trees. The, the high mountains are for the wild goats. The cliffs are a refuge for hyraxes. He made the moon to mark the festivals. The sun knows when to set. You bring darkness and it becomes night when all the forest animals stir. The young lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises and they go back and lie down in their dens for roughly 21 hours a day. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until evening. How countless are your works, Yahweh. In wisdom, you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. <laughs> Here is the sea, vast and wide, teeming with creatures beyond number. Can you just hear Genesis 1 in the, echoing in the background? Living things, both large and small. There the ships move about, and Leviathan, which you formed to play there. All of them wait for you to give them their food at the right time. And when you give it to them, they gather it. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. And when you send your breath, they are created and you renew the surface of the ground. Oh, may the glory of Yahweh endure forever. May Yahweh rejoice in his works, his works. He looks at the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they pour out smoke. I will sing to Yahweh all my life. I will sing praise to my God while I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him. What meditation? The psalm itself. I think the psalm itself. So the rejoicing is connected to walking through this world walking through this earth and ascribing everything he is seeing to the direct intervention of this God. And God is never, never out of his thoughts, never far from his mind. I will rejoice in Yahweh. May sinners vanish from the earth and wicked people be no more. My soul, he, be, he begins how he ends. My soul, bless Yahweh. Hallelujah. Through God's providence, we see God involved in his creation at each moment. God has not abandoned his creation after he made it. Rather, he tends to it. He sustains it by his infinite power and sovereignty. God's providence causes to continue what has already been called into existence. And he does it by sustaining it, 
working in and through it, and directing it for his good purposes. These three avenues are commonly known as preservation, that's the sustaining it, concurrence, that's working in and through it, and government, directing it for his good purpose. So let's look at each of these three in turn. Yes? Um, it, it would appear that there's a close relationship between Psalm 103 and Psalm 104. And in what, in what particular way? That they seem to have much of the same structure. Mm, yeah. Um, starting with, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, and ending with, bless the Lord, O my soul. <laughs> Yep. But slightly different emphases. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That would be a fair summary. All right. Number one, preservation. Uh it, it was uh, a sweet providence of God that this would be the, the topic for this week after, after preaching Romans eleven thirty three to 36, for from him and through him and to him. So from him, preservation, God upholds and sustains all things. Preservation is the term used to say that God keeps all created things existing and maintaining the properties which he created them to have. He is preserving his creation. God, in preserving all things that he has made, also causes them to maintain the properties, properties with which he created them. So God preserves water in such a way that it continues to act like water. He causes grass to continue to act like grass with all its distinctive characteristics. For example, this lectern was created from, I don't know, some wood, plastic, steel, various elements, and it's hard, and he's preserving it in that shape and form. I don't expect during this lecture for this to all of a sudden dissolve into a pool. I expect for it to maintain the properties that it has. And it is my belief that it's God actively causing that to be so. We shouldn't think, however, of God's preservation as a continuous new creation. He doesn't create new atoms and molecules every second for every existing thing, it would seem. Rather, he preserves what has already been created. Let's look at some of the verses that talk about this, I think. Colossians 1, 15 to 17. We've seen this one before, but these are good ones to drive into our heads so we know where to go with these various topics. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible. Whether that be thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Him. So, which is really wonderful to hear 
Romans eleven thirty three to 36, which is more directly speaking of, it seems, sometimes it can be a little bit hard to discern in the Bible. Um, I, I try and often when I'm reading the scriptures where you see God, is this, is this God the Father that's being referred to? Is this God the Son? Is it the Spirit? Is it God as in like a triune God? Um, but here we're seeing this, the same God being talked about in Romans 11 is this through him and for him God here in Colossians 1. Paul reflecting on Jesus. Jesus is before all things and by him, by Jesus, all things hold together. Or Hebrews 1, long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so he became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so once again, it, this is just a, a reaffirmation of, uh, you've heard me say this many times through all of these semesters, whether it was Bible, how to study the Bible or biblical theology, that you know, thinking about the story of God and that he's the great author and, and he's constantly speaking the servant, he's upholding the universe by the word of his power, and were he to stop speaking, everything would just cease to exist. And maybe this is what Paul is pointing to in Acts 17, 28, when he says, in him we live and move and have our being. Which, conversely then, without him, we don't live, we don't move, we don't have being. Without Jesus, nothing would have come into existence. That's the doctrine of creation. And without Jesus, nothing would continue to exist, which is the doctrine of preservation. As part of God's creation, we can be thankful to God for the preservation of our own lives. Elihu, which we may have bones to pick with those various friends who were gathered around Job, but they at times spoke truth and wisdom. When he says of God in Job 34, 14 to 15, if he put his mind to it and withdrew the spirit and breath that he gave, every living thing would perish together and mankind would return to the dust. I think Elihu's right. So number one, God preserves or upholds and sustains all things. And then I wrote right here, any questions? <laughs> Which is almost silly <laughs> in itself as a question. Because <laughs> I'm sure if we thought about it for a little while, we'd have all kinds of questions. Um, but do you? Do you have any questions on preservation? Brian. Thank you. 
Yeah, right. <laughs> Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to the, him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Does there seem to be a contradiction between those two? I don't think so. I think there may be a paradox in there for me. Um, that is hard to untangle in my current understanding. Uh, conversations that you and I have had a little bit in a, in a book that I'm currently reading to learn more about, Michael Heisner, The Unseen Realm, and just these ideas of, yeah, what are, I mean, even in, I think back to Colossians, I'm, I'm sure you would be thinking about, Brian, is, yeah, what are these rulers or, or, or authorities? Yeah. You know, are these merely human rulers or authorities um a la ephesians 6 or is there is there some is this referring to other rulers and authorities the principalities and the powers in the heavenly realms is how i think i would translate that passage uh is it both and <laughs> is it all of the above like it's it could be human kings or um yeah so brian and i have been having a, a little bit of conversations like after class a couple weeks ago, I think it was, and just starting to dive in, for me anyway, I'm starting to dive in, Brian's ahead of me here, um, on just what are some of these, you know, for example, in, is it chapter one? Is it right away in chapter one in Job when, when um, the Satan walks into this, in, into this realm and, um, and there's all of these heavenly, you know, to leave it as a larger category for the time being, heavenly beings that are gathered around the throne of God and there's a conversation happening and the Satan saunters in to, to start a conversation. And so to what degree, um, how do we understand the usage of Elohim in the scriptures as are there almost like secondary Elohim? Maybe we could call them like capital E Elohim is, is Yahweh God and there's secondary Elohim. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't have that worked out yet. Um, I'm working on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what I, what I feel I have worked out, at least what I can get from Paul is, is I think a, a primary, um, like even in, in, um, verse four, uh, so he is superior to the angels just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. So there's at least that hierarchy where, I, like, I don't fear that, that Jesus is superior in power, authority, son of God. Um, I think it seems to me all of those others are still created beings where God is not a created. He's not creature. He's creator. Um, so, like, that still feels foundational and rock solid to me, understanding some of these levels in this, you know, to, to steal from Heisner of this unseen realm. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to just, continue. I'm slowly wake, making my way through his book because he's worth taking slowly. Yeah, so that's a good question. Yes, Margaret. But I think when we consider Philippians, he emptied himself, mm -hmm. he took upon himself the form of a servant, you know, that he has laid aside so many of his divine powers attributes. and divine attributes when he took on human form 
so that Satan can come and tempt him. <coughs> I mean, that's, that's part of God's plan and providence also, preparing him for his earthly ministry. Yeah, it doesn't certainly. mean that Satan is superior to him at any point. And of course, in the debate, <coughs> Jesus wins. Right, you know? right. Yeah, he, 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 he was in all things as a yeah, yeah, without absolutely. sin. Right. Yeah. 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 That part is temptation. Uh, when he's being tempted by Satan, he was temptation of the uh, uh, human aspect of it. Colossians, reference refers to his eternal godliness. Yeah, I, I think the interesting thing to work those you're all speaking truth the, the interesting thing is as you continue to dive deeper in the story so i think if i'm hearing brian right i think the the working through at that point and understanding the divinity and the power and the rule of christ and and aspects of to what degree is he laid glory aside um i i think if if i were to, now i haven't read heiser on this yet but with what I currently understand of Heisner's proposal of trying to understand the, these realms and the powers that are operating in them, um, kind of a basic foundational argument that he has is we have to take it that the temptation was real in order for it to be a temptation. So what does it mean when we hear the Satan offering to, Je offering to Jesus and proposing that he has the power to grant him kingdoms and authorities and like, I'm, I'm placing all of this before you. Um, so it, it's part of that, there's things that he laid aside so I can understand there's, there's a rule that he's not exerting in this moment, which I think is part of what Philippians is helping us understand. I think part of Jesus's response is, it's not my time to take up that now, I'm bringing the kingdom, but it's not gonna be a full kingdom right now. So. Yeah, I'm not falling prey to that. And, and just also, but that tension of to what degree, what power does the Satan have? Um, to make that like an actual real temptation that he has the ability and how do you square that? I'm guessing you're asking, Brian, how do you square that with um, he is before, over, by him all things hold together. And so I, I think that's just the conversation that we're having is working that working that out. Yeah. Jesus refers to Satan as the god of this present world. Mm -hmm. so Absolutely. Satan is the usurper, and he is offering what he has usurped to the human Jesus. Yeah, and it, I think it's just, and I fully agree with that. I, I think it's helpful, and I think stimulating to ponder. Because again, I don't think contradiction, I think there's certain paradox because isn't it an interesting thing that he can say that? And what we just read from Psalm 104 and the whole concept of providence is that God, it, he can, Satan can both be the ruler of this present world without God ever taking his hand off the scepter and off of the rule. So how do those things, how do those two things coexist? I think that's the that's a stimulating thing to think through um, because I believe they do. I, I don't believe for a second there's still a hierarchy. God is still on the throne. God is still ruling all. 
Um, you know, next week we're going to get into, I'm sure Roger and I were talking already before this class, like he's not the source of evil, but where does evil come from? Did God create like that whole question that we'll get into that sticky wicket next week? Um, I don't know. I, I, I think that is a, it's a very interesting and challenging thing for my human brain to fully work out. Because I think both those things are true, right? Is that what you would, that's what you would propose, I think, even just by the question or the statement? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, my goodness. Um, then, and then the, the text that just leaps into my nose, greater is he than he that is in the world. So I can take confidence. Yes, he is the ruler of this world, but not ruling over Jesus and his reign that he said over and over and over again, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You were raising your hand. Sorry, I, it's just original language pronunciation working, oh, okay, its, okay. working its way into my transliteration. Because I'm like, I'm Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, there's various, yes. Like in Revelation, where it talks, to, where, um, and I'm not, someone can help me, maybe they've got the exact quote, but he, um, he's the one who's standing constantly uh, making accusations, I think, is, uh, against the saints. Um, right? Like he's just. Right. And being the Satan. Great point. Okay. Yeah. There's also a hockey player okay. whose last name is <laughs> Exactly. <Satan>. Right. <laughs> Although it's just a little dig to the Satan, I never capitalize it. Just as a dig. Like I don't I don't even want to capitalize it. <laughs> I'm just kinda of coming back at you. Yes, Paul. <laughs> Um, well, that's interesting. I, I don't hear, see if how I think about it will answer okay. your question. Um, I, I haven't thought about it quite that way. Normally where my mind goes in, in trying to understand the story is, uh, the Satan is, a, you know, usurper. I like that, that word, uh, Claude, um, pride was what cause him. I desire to be as Yahweh. And so I think that when God's, and there's so much that we can talk about, just like, how do we understand, you know, what was going on before the creation of the world? And there seems to be a kind of a pre-fall to the, to the fall that we generally understand, kind of post-Genesis 1, right? Um, but I think the issue with the Satan is 
here he sees Yahweh's plan working out. Uh, I, I am making you my image, but I'm making you my vice regent. There's this royal, right? Like I'm, I'm giving you the control, the rule of this world. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, uh, spread my glory across, uh, across this earth that I've created. Um, create, right? Be like me, image me, reflect me. And so it seems to me, as I imagine it, um, filled with rage and fury, at, I think this is what the Satan wants. He seeks to destroy the image bearer, to deface, to vandalize, in essence, the creation of God and to, and to tear that creation down. And, and then, therefore, now if I can... Because I'm, he's, he's still seeking rule. He's still seeking control. He's still seeking that, that pride of place, it seems to me. So I, I think we're, we're thinking of it similarly, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, let's move. Let's move. Uh... Can I just add one more question real quick? Yes. Laid aside his glory, Paul says. Laid aside his glory. So, um, does that mean that by him and through him all things that were, be, were held together were no longer meant to make you honor? Do you understand what I'm saying? I, I, oh, I absolutely understand what you're saying. Yeah, because it, it's a really, really important theological question about exactly what does that, what does that passage mean. Um, what, what I think Jesus is laying aside in that moment, I, there's a couple of things I, that I think are going on there. Um, my current understanding of that text is, one, I think partly what he's laying aside is the literal, uh, so when Hebrews says, right, he's the exact expression, he is the radiance of the glory of God. So um, to explain partly what I think is going on there is to go to the transfiguration. And I think in the transfiguration event that for a moment, Jesus takes, picks back up again some of the radiance of that glory. And so it's as if, you know, kind of like Moses in the whole veil thing, like the glory of God kind of comes on Moses a bit when he's in his presence. It's like it rubs off on him or something. And like an iridescence, and so he has to cover himself with a veil because it's freaking everybody out and it's too bright for them. I think that's what Jesus is laying aside, is that, that radiance of glory, and we see the white-hot reality of that. Like, this is the true Jesus. The, the veil gets kind of pulled aside, and they're like, ah, oh, and they just and they do exactly what Israel did. They freak out. Um, it seems to me also that when, when we look at the life of Jesus, that he, there's a certain laying aside of access is how I think about it. Um, not because the, the totality of the scripture is seen that he is, he's never not who he is. It, it, it doesn't like, logically it, it doesn't hold for me in, in the overall testimony of the scriptures that that could be. So then my only conclusion is that it must be that he laid aside a certain access to divine attributes like, um, 
like being all-knowing, right? So it says in Luke, like he grew in wisdom and knowledge and in stature, in reputation with men. There, there were things he had to learn. He, he wasn't always walking on water. He, he, there were, the storms still happened. And then, and then anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit, under the direction, I would imagine, of the Father, because I submit in all things to your will, um, then he would grab hold, I'm going to heal this person, and I'm going to, in, in, in this time, I'm just going to say, they're already healed, so he just had to think about it, and the centurion's servant is healed. And then sometimes he's going to spit in dirt. And do, so there's like all these different choices that he's making that seems to be various pulling back of things that are are still there that he has access to, but he is choosing to limit himself. He limits himself to be, to be crucified. The, the, he, he's upholding by the word of his power the Roman soldiers who are lifting hammers and driving na- the nails, the steel that he created into his hands. There, there's, there's things that he's choosing to lay aside. But I don't think um, in substance in nature, there, it was as if, um, you know, like, like if I were to, you know, I'm going to cut off this hand. So like, I literally, it's not a part of me anymore. I, it doesn't, and, and I, I'm sorry, because there's probably, if I thought for a while, there'd be other texts that, that comes, that would come particularly to mind. That's why I keep saying the, the totality of my understanding of the scriptures and how Paul talks about Jesus, how Jesus talks about himself. Um, yeah, so there's my answer. <laughs> hope, I hope that helps. It's, it's, an, it's, it's a great, it, you, you brought me right back to my ordination council because this, I was asked that question at my ordination council. They must have thought I did somewhat okay because I am or, I'm an ordained pastor, so I... <laughs> I don't, but I do have a certificate. It's the only paper I care about. On my stu- in my study, you go into my study, you won't see my degrees and my, the only paper I care about is that uh, it seems to me, Matthew, 12 people that came together. And these divine attributes could not entirely fit in a human body. You know, that by, by consenting to be born as a human being, that in itself is, is limiting. limiting. Uh, yeah, that, yes and no, because see, this is how I, I don't, I, maybe you mean something different than, so my response to that would be, I, I have to still hold he's fully God and fully man, always, like that, that has all, I mean, once, mm-hmm. once the incarnation occurs, mm-hmm. once he takes on flesh, mm-hmm. um, oh, there, isn't, there isn't any moment at which he was less than fully God. So I don't know that I'm necessarily comfortable with the body can't contain because the, his body is currently containing all of those attributes. So I think that was always the case. That, that's why I'm saying I think there was a self, he was choosing to, to be limiting in some way. Now, the, the, only, the only pickle there slightly for me, and I was actually just um, thinking about this last week uh, in relationship to the work of the Holy Spirit and Paul calling the Holy Spirit the spirit of the Messiah. Um, because we know that with God there is, um, I'm trying to remember the theological term, but there, there's, no, 
there's no change. Is it the immutability of God? So there's no change. And then you go, but wait a second. (laughs) If there's no change, how do I explain the incarnation? Because that seems to be a fairly significant change. He took on flesh. He, so it's not that Jesus merely chose a certain kind of limitation that wasn't before. Like in human language, we have to say Jesus existed always without a body. Now he exists in a body that he always will exist in, which causes me to marvel at him. It, it seems like there's probably, I don't think there's any grief in Jesus in that. I don't think there's any disappointment in Jesus in that. Um, He did that for the joy set before him. But it blows me away that he chose. I would not choose to have this body. And he chose that. And I think, so so then I wrestle with, well, how can Jesus still be omnipresent if he has the limiting reality of a body? And that's then, I think, an understanding of the spirit being the spirit of Messiah that allows Jesus. So I am with you always Mm -hmm. in all places at all time. Mm -hmm. I think it's what he's meaning by that is it is the work. It is through the spirit that I am present with you Um, because I want you right as a disciple of Jesus. What is my desire? He says, John 15 and following abide in me, abide with me. And then I say, um, <laughs> that's not fair. The disciples, the 12 got to, um, 500 got to. I-, I want, I would love to have breakfast with you. <laughs> I, w- I would love that. And his answer is, yes, and it's better that I go. It's better that I depart because um, I will send the Spirit and I will be with you always. And I'll be with, with the one who believes in me in India always. And I'll, believe, I'll be with the Cameroonian always at the same time. And if I remain the way I am right now, I wouldn't be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how I can abide. And I can be with him and he with me. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. And, and then I think, you know, bless Yahweh, oh my soul. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, what a God. Number two, concurrence. God works in and through all things. God works in and through all things. Okay, this is this is a hard one for me, so I'm just gonna just gonna say that up front. So, and we're gonna be able to ask questions at the end. I, it, it, you may have some very good questions that I can't answer. Um, concurrence is the aspect, and I and I I sense the, you know, often we call them the divines, right? The, the those who came before us and um, who worked hard and created Heidelberg Catechisms and Westminster Confession and, um, and are trying to give us categories to understand this unsearchable, inscrutable God. This is one of those. Concurrence is the aspect of divine providence that describes how God works in and through all things. And I'm thinking of you here, Roger. <laughs> this is... Um, particularly actions of God's creatures. In concurrence, we see divine agency and human agency running together, or one could say running alongside each other in specific actions that are occurring. 
So concurrence basically means that God cooperates with created things in every action. Okay, so here's, here's where, it's, this is just, just bear with for a second because I feel like human language, it's so hard to try and describe the infinite. So concurrence basically means that God cooperates with created things in every actions. And yet because of everything we just read, Psalm 104, and you, you see other texts there under preservation that I've listed in the, in the handout. And he directs their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. In other words, things that happen are, first and foremost, events that God causes to happen, decrees to happen, <laughs> rights before time began would happen, and yet God works through the distinctive properties of each created thing so that these things themselves bring about the results that we see. And in this way, the actions are still real actions. Because the tension is, um, so many people, when, I think when they bump up against like providence, sovereignty, God's control in all things, this ruling creator, um, they feel this frustration, annoyance, anger. Yeah, but then I'm, he's just like some grand puppeteer and I'm just this little marionette that's doing what he wants me to, you know, I'm just, he's pulling on all the strings. That's determinism. And that's, and that's a, and people have a problem with that. Claude. But th that's determinism and, and Christians should oppose determinism. because. That's so define determinism for us, please. Determinism is that we have no free choice whatsoever we're automatons mm -hmm. and, and we need to oppose determinism determinism is not Christian so I'm trying to think of how because um, I've heard that before but I always forget what the definition is so thank you for um, defining it um, how that holds when you say Christians should oppose that with my understanding and again recently in, in Romans with the idea that I, I, don't, I, I don't ascribe to, and again, we, we really have to define our terms, a, a freedom of the will or a freedom of that we're either slaves to sin or we're slaves to righteousness. Mm -hmm. And so how would you make a distinction between that statement that Paul is making in Romans and determinism? Or anyone can answer that question, but we'll start with Claude. Determinism basically says we have no agency at all. Right. That that God is the only agent, and and things are just moving along in a mechanical way, and that's not the perspective of Scripture. I think there's a lot of tension there because we acknowledge God's sovereignty and foreordination, um, but we don't subscribe to determinism. Yeah, so I think probably then, and again, I, I think it, it feels like it can get murky in here um, in, in the midst of this discussion that we're trying to have. So let me, let me build a couple of other ideas and then let's see where that takes us and, and keep talking about it. Um, because I, I think you're right. I, I think that choices that I'm making are still real choices. And and absolutely, and and I think that 
they're all so this is this idea of he's causing every action to happen causing properties to act as they do and these properties um are themselves happening we're causing them to have bring those things about but not outside of the direct control and involvement of god as well that both can be true now margaret and i have been reading uh, proverbs recently and it is clear that proverbs were constantly advocated to choose wisdom as if our choices matter i mean that is clearly the perspective of, Pro of proverbs right and in proverbs 16 9 we read, a person's heart plans his way, but it is Yahweh who determines his steps. So there's, I think, in that one... There's the tension. Exactly. There's that one tension. So I can say, um, I can show you my iCal for tomorrow. <laughs> the choices that I made to even put the, the entries in for the way that I'm going to... For the way that tomorrow is that I've planned for tomorrow. I've, I've made choices for, I've turned down appointments for tomorrow. I, I did, and Yahweh determined those choices. Mm -hmm. And so there's a divine, this is, and I haven't read enough of Luther because I've read a little bit of Luther's, is it the freedom of the will? Mm -hmm. um, where I, I think that's what he speaks in terms of agency rather than uh, will and I'm owning as a way to try and at least hold the, the conflict, hold the, the paradox, not contradiction, <laughs> the paradox together of that, that this can be both and. That I, you know, we just read in the, in the Heidelberg Catechism um, that it's every blade of grass and every, right? Like, and, and, my choice is still a real choice. In the same way that the cloud going across the sky that was placed in that sky by God himself is still a real cloud. The choice that he determined that I would make tomorrow, and we'll see what happens. <laughs> but I think God knows. I think God already knows what my day will be tomorrow. But all the, the choices, the things that I do will also be my agency operating within that providence and sovereignty would you agree i like the term agency mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i think and how would you define that brother initiative human initiative go ahead Mark. i think when you look at the opposite <coughs> we truly can become slaves of sin mm -hmm. you know that ultimately that's when we lose our choice when we choose to go against God's way, whatever it might be. You know, you could use the example of the drug addict or the alcoholic or something. That person doesn't really have a lot of choice about his or her next action. Or we can be servants of God. The path of the righteous is as the dawn, leading, leading evermore into perfect day. I mean, that notion of God's guidance and our choosing into mm -hmm. his way. Not the freedom to do what we want, but the liberty to do what we should. Yes, yeah, and I think that's the difference between, <coughs> between agency and still, 
still Paul being able to say, in that sense, you're a slave to righteousness. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. And, and that we start off in that we start off in the sin that is re resulting, you know, in sin. My mother conceived me, and and yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good, Margaret. Brian, you had a question or a, or a comment. I was just going to. This may not be helpful at all, but <laughs> the tension between free will and determinism. Sometimes I think about it, and this might be not absolutely correct, but most of our physical law, well. All the physical laws that I know of have what's called either uh, have boundary conditions, and they're either um, temporal boundary conditions or um, or position uh, boundary conditions. Uh, I'm not using the right word right now, but um, um, so, anyways, the, the point that the reason why I'm bringing this up is because we have physical laws that tell you what will happen if something else happens, mm -hmm. but none of our physical laws ever tell us what that something is that may happen at the boundary, either the boundary of time or in space. And so, and so God can, you know, change, he can, he can act and in time and space to change what the result, what resulting happens according to physical laws. Does this make sense? So in some ways our physical laws are deterministic. Because it says this will happen if this or this or this happens, mm -hmm. yeah. but it doesn't say you know what, what what God does at the boundary. It doesn't say what is His input in terms of energy or whatever you want, whatever you want to say. So in, in that way, um, things are deterministic, but there's free will in terms of boundary conditions of to set things in motion. Does that make Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Which I think is a little bit. The sunshine longer. Right. If necessary, right. which is outside of the physical law we understand. Yeah. That, so you know the thing. So this is as the creator, he has that this is prerogative. A conflict between you know science and religion and the discussion of miracles and, and everybody. People say, well, no, his miracles violate physical laws, and you're like, well, no, because Jesus could have changed the boundary conditions, and if we say that Jesus is the one that you know keeps everything together and holds all things together and all that, and if we assume that he didn't give that power up when he was on earth, all the miracles were available to him. I actually think, uh, I can talk to you about this later, Isaiah 9-6 I think actually supports the fact that Jesus was holding all things together even while he was here on earth. And um, so, so anyways, I didn't want to get off topic, but, but my, the point is, is that um, Science and religion, science can't say anything about what God can do because it's fixed by just what happens if God does something, you know? So what God chooses to do is not something that science can comment on no. at all. Let's keep going with concurrence. <laughs> Primary and secondary causes. The divine cause of each event works as an invisible behind the scenes directing cause and therefore can be called a primary cause that plans and initiates everything that happens. Um, so this is a bit, a bit back to the, I, I've 
giving you all the, the metaphor before of like trying to understand how God is operating, that he's the, you know, it's like a, a play or a movie. He's the, he's the author. He, he writes the play and then he's the director. He, he steps in. So it's before time began, right? Like he's prepared good works beforehand. It's before that we should walk in them. So he's the author. Now he directs. He brings you as the actor onto the stage. He directs that you would walk in those good works that he's, Proverbs 16, he's establishing your steps. Mm-hmm. He's bringing you into those things. Those are still good works that you're doing yes. <laughs> that you will be rewarded for at the last day. We should walk in Yes, that. justify by faith, judge according to works. Um, so he's author and director. He's writing behind the scenes and directing and the created thing brings about the actions in ways consistent with the creature's own properties, ways that can often be described by us or scientists who carefully observe these processes. These creaturely factors and properties can therefore be called secondary causes of everything that happens, even though they are the causes that are evident to us by observation. They're secondary because we can't see the primary. And that's where... I was going to quote, but jumped ahead to Proverbs 16.9. A person's heart plans his way. That's what we see. That's the observable. That's the, but it's actually a secondary cause because it's Yahweh determining his steps. Or look at Acts 14.15-17. So we're jumping into the midst of a story to see a, a, a truth that comes out in the midst of this narrative that's happening. People, why are you doing these things? You know, falling down and worshiping us. We are people also, just like you, and we are proclaiming good news to you that you would turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and everything in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to go their own way, although he did not leave himself without a witness since he did what is good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. The secondary cause of the growth of the food and the gladness of their hearts were the rains from heaven, fruitful seasons from heaven. The rain caused the food to grow and the fruitful seasons made the heart glad. But behind those secondary causes, there was a primary cause, namely God. He was the one who gave the rains and the fruitful seasons. Or Acts 17, 24 to 27, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Master, he's curious, he's ruler, he's Lord, would be one translation, of heaven and earth. That God does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Why? Because he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things from one man. He has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him, now that's the passage that I quoted earlier, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even Paul says, some of your own poets have recognized. For we are also his offspring, he quotes. This is the Mars Hill passage. Right? Yeah, yeah. 
Now, you, you may be thinking, well, wait a second. Wasn't it my parents who decided where and when I was born? Didn't they have some role in this? Well, yes, they did. But this text is saying that behind the secondary cause of your parents having sexual intercourse and therefore, in a sense, very real sense, giving you life and deciding where you would be born, Santa Monica, California for me, there was a primary cause, namely God, because he was the one who determined that I would be born to Georgine Cephas on April 4th, 1969 in Santa Monica, California. He determined that time, that boundary. He gave me life and breath. He decides when and where anyone will dwell on this earth. And it is in him that I live and move and have my being, which I think an application of this truth is it means that we should be thankful for all that God does in and through us. And not only us, but the things around us. If it rains, we should thank God. If crops grow, we should thank God. If the wind blows, we should thank God. (laughs) Further, we should be able to bask in the immensity of God in thinking through this doctrine. How big is God? that not even snow can fall on Monarch Mountain without God having a hand in it. That not even an animal's cry, the bleeding of sheep or the mooing of a new calf can can happen without God's hand being over it. Everything, even inanimate objects, work in cooperation with God. Job 37, six to 13. For he says to the snow, fall to the earth and to the torrential rains, his mighty torrential rains, to serve as a sign to all mankind so that all men may know his work. Right, that's Acts 14, 17. These these rains came from heaven. The wild animals enter their lairs and stay in their dens. The windstorm comes from its chamber and the cold from the driving north winds. Ice is formed by the breath of God. And watery expanses are frozen. He saturates clouds with moisture. He scatters his lightning through them. They swirl about, turning round and round at his direction, accomplishing everything that he commands them over the surface of the inhabited world. He causes this to happen both for punishment, for his land, and his faithful love. God is behind everything. The snow that I skied on on Friday, (laughs) the ice that I slipped on, On Saturday, all that we see or even do not see, which should both give us extreme comfort and allow us to just sit amazed at the enormity of the God that we serve. The last two mornings, at least, making coffee and seeing, our our view is a little bit blocked of Shavanaugh and those peaks over there but the aspen glow that's been happening again that I, I haven't seen for a little while but like i just you know i'm getting my water for my coffee and i look up and i see this that stark pinkish against and the sky's been blue behind it right so it's just like it, it doesn't even look real it just looks fake almost like but like immensely gorgeous and amazing at the same time but almost like not like am i oh my gosh 
So then I just have to go over and stand by the window and kind of get on my tippy toes and just try and see a little bit more and just watch for a while. I'm like, oh, okay, I better finish my coffee. And he's amazing. He's amazing. Finally, government. God rules and directs all things. The third aspect of providence that scripture teaches is government. I mean, there's probably more, but we're, we're looking at three. God governs the world and directs all things to their appointed purpose. In other words, the world and everything in it is not ruled by chance or by fate. Please don't read a horoscope. Don't do it. Never. Read, read your Bible. It's not ruled by chance or... It's not ruled by chance or fate, but by God who directs history and creation toward an ultimate goal. Scripture beautifully sums up all this in repeatedly speaking of God as the creator king who governs all things. Psalm 103, (laughs) verse 19. Yahweh has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. It says elsewhere, right, that the earth is his footstool. Daniel 4, 34 and 35. But at the end of those days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, Having been very prideful, looked up to heaven and my sanity returned to me. Then I praised the Most High and I honored and glorified him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation and all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does what he wants with the armies of the heavenly realm. And he does what he wants with the inhabitants of the earth. And there is no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? <laughs> like a mom <laughs> coming into the room with the kids. Ah, what have you done? <laughs> no one gets to say that to God. God is the one who is steering the ship of history. There is a destination and God's purpose to bring the world to that goal will happen. Paul says in Romans 8, 28, that we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to what? His purpose. purpose. Ephesians 1, 7 through 12. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, that he purposed in the Messiah. So as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in the Messiah, both things in the heavenly realms and things on earth in him. In him, we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. Everything. I looked up the Greek there. Do you know what the Greek word meant? Everything. Everything. So that we who had already put our hope in the Messiah might bring praise to his glory. Notice in these verses a few different aspects of God's divine government. First, God's governing activity is universal. It does not merely extend to his own people. It extends to all matters and all men. That which is good and that which is not good. Ephesians 1.11 says that he works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. Second, God is good in his government. Romans 8.28 says that God works for the good of those who love him. 
The good that we see in Romans 8, 28 is referring to God's purpose in conforming his children to the image of his own son, which you see in verse 29. Third, God is personally concerned about those who are his. Again, Romans 8, 28 shows that this governing that God does is concerned with his own children. And finally, fourthly, God is sovereign in his government. This means that he and he alone determines his own plan. He knows the significance of each of his actions. Recall from Psalm 103, Yahweh has established his throne in the heavenly realms and his kingdom rules over all. Or as it is put in Daniel, all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand. That is Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. To which we should say, so what? So what? what? Why do we care about the providence of God? It's grant that it's true. It's grant that there may be aspects of it we don't fully understand. Well, there's a few things that I think we can draw from this doctrine. Number one, well, a couple of, couple of them on this one, trust. Believe in God's providence means that we can trust God for all things because he has already handled our biggest problem, sin. Faith in the Messiah enables us as believers, in spite of all the riddles that perplex us and tearful trials that come and go in our lives, as believers in the Messiah, we cling to the conviction that the God who rules the world is the same loving and compassionate Father who in the Messiah has forgiven us all of our sins, who has accepted us and adopted us as his children, and who will receive us with joy into his glorious presence forever. So in all of our suffering and tears, Christians may look forward with joy to the future, with faith in our God's fatherly hand of providence. He is governing all things to the purpose of his will. God's providence is precisely a source of humility and hope and trust and consolation and courage. Also, we may trust that in him, we can trust him so completely as to have no doubt that he will provide you with all things necessary for your body and soul, that he will... I remember Spurgeon. He says it very pithily, and I'm not going to remember exactly his quote, but something along the lines of... Along the lines of it, when he's thinking about the providence of God, if there's something that isn't in my life, I can trust that I did not truly need it. Right. And if there is something in my life, even if I don't want it in my life, I can trust that it's exactly what I need. Because God. And that... It doesn't solve the problems. It doesn't remove all the pain, potential, the potential pain of that. But there's a kind of consolation in that. And I think that's why when we look at world events, who's our president, who's not the president, <laughs> what's going on here, what's going on there, it's all in God's hands. Yeah. And nothing is surprising him right now. Right. Yeah. And you shouldn't get so worked up over it because God... In his hands. Yeah. Yeah. I am. <laughs> but not in the way that many others are saying it. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't.
Oh, of course not. Right. Yeah, right, right. Or vote. Right, I mean. Right. We'll get to Romans 13 uh, soon, eno- soon enough, Romans 13, yeah, in, in matters of government and political outcomes. Um, how, how timely that we get to be in Romans 13 in an election year. Um, at least I think it's timely. Some, some may not be ready to hear what the scripture has to say and think of it as so timely. In him you can trust so completely as to have no doubt that he will provide you with all things necessary for your body and soul. He will also turn to your good whatever adversity he sends you in this life of sorrow. He is able to do so because he is almighty God and willing to do so because he's a faithful father. Second, patience. God's pri- Oh, this one was right for Matthew Molesky. God's providence also means that we can be patient in adversity. Or just, right? Adversity very broadly defined. Isn't it amazing what some of us think is adversity? Because my schedule didn't go the way I wanted today. That just feels like adversity and a trial, right? Um, Am I willing to believe that God is for me in all of my obstacles and detours in my life? Am I willing to believe that he's for me in the detours? Right down to the engine light coming on today. <laughs> that he's for me in that. Instead of, instead of right, because what is the immediate response that we have when the engine light comes on? <laughs> oh, for the love. Oh, no. Like, okay, how much is this going to cost? How long am I going to be without this vehicle? Is it still going to run even is this the final last gasp of this 182,000-mile vehicle? Like, no, God is, God knew the engine light was coming on today. If we know that God is working and that he's working for our good, then we can wait knowing that he hasn't forgotten us. So far from forgetting us, he has ordained everything in the universe for us. Gratitude. This is a big one. Moreover, it means being thankful in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. Not just, well, you know, God did it. Guess I'll have to bear it. But, okay, thank you, God. I, it's hard for me to be thankful for the engine light. <laughs> but I'm supposed to in whatever circumstance I find myself in. Whether it is prosperity or poverty, we know that God has ordained things for the good of those who love him. And so we can be thankful that God has seen to it that we are in the circumstance we're in right now. While we may not understand all of the reasons for the circumstance, we can know that God does know and is at work in our lives, even now to bring us closer to him and more closely conform to the image of his son, Romans 8, 29. So why Paul can say to the Thessalonians, give thanks in everything. In everything. For this is the will of God for you in the Messiah, Jesus. Finally, hope. With a view to the future, God's providence means that we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. If we had time, I'd read to you a large portion from Romans 8, 28 to 39, but read that later. I'll I'll, I'll give you the end of it. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Messiah Jesus, our King. We have a hope that no one else in the world has, those that don't believe in this Jesus, because we have been given a promise that they do not believe in, that God will work all things for the good of those who love him, and that this God who loves us and works out all things for our good will never leave us and will never forsake us and will never allow us to be separated from him. In this we have hope, great hope. Hallelujah. What a savior. Father God, we're grateful for this, for this night. We're, we're grateful for your word. Um, even with your word, we have, we have so many questions, Father. But with your word, so many question, questions are answered. Uh, so many things are clear um, so that we can, that we can trust, that, that we can be patient, uh, that we can be thankful, and that we can have hope. Father, thank you for my brothers and sisters from whom I have learned tonight. Thank you for um, iron sharpening iron uh, that, so that we might grow one step closer to your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.